0: Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things that are visible, that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was right, God testifying about it by his gifts. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so, Father, as we just sang, help us to listen to this great cloud of witnesses recorded in this chapter, men and women who exhibited faith, men and women who... Surround us by their example and help us, therefore, to run the race with endurance to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you, Father, that you've always had your church, that the gates of hell will never prevail against it, that even before the time of the Great Reformation, your people met in various places, much persecuted. But thank you for the way you worked this month some 500 years ago, And rescuing people out of the institutionalized church who are blind to the truth of the gospel and how you use them to spur thousands into the kingdom. And we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so as we open it, we ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds to its truth. Thank you that you are patient with us in our failure. Thank you that you are committed to forming and growing in us the image of Christ. And so we ask for the Holy Spirit's help today as we read the scripture, that we would not just learn, but that we would be changed, that we would become more like your son. Please help me, Father, in your grace and mercy, fill me and use me and help me to teach the scriptures precisely and accurately that Jesus the Lord might be glorified. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 6 as we continue our study of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? The Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic schedule is the rapture of the church. But after the church is raptured, after the church is removed, a seven-year period will begin on earth known as the Great Tribulation Period. Revelation 6 through 19 unfolds many of the events that will take place during that time. And as we read and study through those chapters, it is so terrible, so frightening, so horrible that you might think I'm exaggerating until you read it for yourself. And of course, Jesus, who never exaggerated, who is the truth, speaking of this time frame, said this, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It is a time that is unprecedented in human history. I mean, you think about what Jesus just said, a time unparalleled in human history. Never been a time like it, never will be again. You think about all the holocausts, all the famines, all the diseases, all the earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, wars. You put them all together, and Jesus said, it doesn't even begin to compare. Anything that has taken place since the inception of time when God made Adam and Eve, doesn't even begin to compare with what we are going to read. Speaking of this future time frame, Daniel was told by Michael the archangel in Daniel 12, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. At that time, your people, speaking of the Jewish people, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So we have started Revelation 6 last week, and what we will learn in Revelation six, all the way through the nineteenth chapter, describes really some unspeakable horror. Now, if you're new, let me just briefly say that the theme of the book is found in Revelation one seven: that Jesus is coming again, that He is coming with the clouds. And the outline of the book, so that we would not misunderstand it, God gave us within the book in Revelation 1-19, Therefore, He says, "Write the things which you have seen." That's the past, and He records that. In chapter 1 of the glorified Christ, write the things which are, that's the present. And so he writes about seven churches that were in existence in his day so that the church throughout time could learn from it. And then he says, and the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. So beginning in chapter 4, he writes of the things that will take place after these things, after, way out there in the future. And just so we could not miss the change of subject, when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, you come to the after these things part of the book. And twice over in the same verse, he repeats it. After these things I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven, We studied that. God opens a door and he lets the church in. We call that the rapture, the catching up, the harpazo. I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And so we saw it is not by accident that the 24 elders who are representative of the entire church are there in heaven praising the Lord. And the seven churches are never mentioned again in the Revelation. All of the saints that we will read about between now and the 19th chapter until Jesus comes back with his church are tribulation saints, people who are saved during the time of the great tribulation. And so the rapture, the catching up, and the second coming are two distinct events. First, he catches us up off the earth. The word rapture is from the Latin Bible that was used for over a thousand years of church history. God will catch up his people. We will meet the Lord in the air, Paul will write. The second coming is an entirely different event, seven plus years later, where Jesus literally, physically, actually descends to the very mountain he ascended into heaven from, the Mount of Olives. And of course, the angels told the apostles that and those who were present that day. And of course, the prophet Zechariah writes of the same thing. And then, when the second coming happens, a glorious time is going to unfold upon the earth. But right now, in the fourth and fifth chapters, we see the saints of God, along with some other people, we're in heaven, praising and worshiping the Lord. Uh, heaven is filled with the praises of God in chapter 4, as God the Father is about ready to judge the earth. But remember, the scripture says all judgment has been given to the Son. And so he has in his right hand a scroll, and he's about ready to hand it to God the Son, the Lamb of God. Chapter 5 signals a change for us in 5 1, I saw on the right hand of him. That's the father who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And so in chapter five, we found the apostle John weeping because of this seven sealed scroll. We read in verse two, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Any first century reader would immediately understand what a seven sealed scroll was. And we studied that. It was a very special document. It's what we might call a last will and testament. And God the Father holds in his right hand the last will and testament, the title deed, so to speak, of the earth. God originally designed for Adam to rule and reign over the creation. But because he listened to the voice of the evil one, he lost that authority. And so Satan now in the New Testament with a small g is called the God of this world. And so when he offers Jesus in the temptation in Matthew 4, Luke 4, all the kingdoms of the world, if he would bow down and worship him, that was a legitimate offer. Satan temporarily has control. Adam lost the farm, so to speak. And so for someone to be able to take the scroll and to reclaim the creation, he must be worthy. And there's only one who is worthy, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus. And with his own blood, not only did he redeem you, but he bought back the title deed to the world. Adam lost it. The second Adam will reclaim it. And so in chapters 6 through 19, we see the events unfolding in which Jesus will come back to the earth and claim the title deed. Now, it's very important that you understand the structure of the revelation or it becomes a little confusing to you. So let me kind of give you some forward thinking and you, you're thinking people, you'll see it for yourselves as we work through the book. Here's a diagram of the seven sealed scroll. We saw this was no ordinary scroll. It was sealed in seven different places, not all across the outside, but a seal would be broken. Truth would be revealed. Another seal would be broken, truth would be revealed. And so we will see first in the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first comes on a white horse. The second seal is broken, and a red horse comes. The third seal, a black horse. The fourth seal, an ashen horse. Then when the fifth seal comes, we will see martyrs, people who are butchered, Beheaded literally, during the time of the great tribulation period because they refuse to take the mark of the beast and they say, Jesus is Lord. Then in the sixth seal, there's some cosmic changes. By the way, this four and three combination is not by accident. We will see the same thing when we come to the trumpet judgments. We'll see four trumpet judgments that are brought together and that will be followed by another three specialized judgments. And then between the sixth and the seventh seal, There's a pause. You read of that pause in Revelation chapter 7. There's 144,000 Jews who are miraculously converted. They become the Billy Grahams of the day. They preach the gospel to the whole world. This gospel of the kingdom shall go to the ends of the earth during this time. What Jesus said is going to happen will be fulfilled. During this time frame, there is that pause. God gives us a chance to catch our breath, as it were. And then the seventh seal is broken. And in the seven seals are contained seven trumpets. And so you can see in this next diagram, the seven trumpet judgments. And again, they are broken into four and three. The last three of the three woe judgments. So trumpets one, two, three, four, five, six. Then there's a pause. We'll come to the 10th chapter. We'll see the angel with his little book and why that is important and critical. We will see the two witnesses who will preach the gospel and their miraculous powers that will associate that. And then when you come to, uh, after that pause, you have the seventh uh, trumpet. And in the seven trumpets are contained seven bowls. And again, we'll see the same pattern with the bowl judgments, all right? That's important. So these don't happen all at once. They happen consecutively. And they will get worse and worse and worse because they are like a woman in labor where the labor pains become more and more intense, closer together, and then full labor takes place. When you come to the seventh trumpet, it seems rather dramatic. Let me read what happens in 11.15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You may think, well, the book should end there. But that statement is made because unlike the seals, where we are revealed a piece at a time, When the seventh seal is open, they will be able to see all seven trumpets and all seven bowls and the implications of them that will bring in the kingdom of God and what God precisely promised. And so the seventh trumpet will chronologically bring in the second coming of Christ. And so uh, here's kind of the big picture. Uh, If you read both Daniel and the Revelation clearly, Again, the open door happens, the rapture takes place, and there's a space of time. This is not done schematically in terms of time. We don't know how big a space that is. But based on what Jesus gives in the opening verse of the Revelation, it's very fast. Maybe it's hours. Maybe it's a few days. Maybe a few weeks. But the church is removed, and a short time later, a one-world leader comes on the scene. And his name is the Antichrist. For three and a half years, Israel is protected. An event takes place right in the middle of the seven year period. Jesus quotes this event from the prophet Daniel. He puts it right in the middle of the seven years. So it's no mystery how Jesus understood the prophet Daniel. It's called the abomination of desolation. And when that event takes place, the trumpet and bowl judgments happen. So the seven seal judgments happen in the first half of the tribulation. When the seventh seal is open, the seven trumpets followed by the seven bowls that will lead to the battle of Armageddon. Israel is persecuted during this time. And it culminates with the second coming of Jesus from heaven. Now, these first four seals are popularly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And with each seal that's broken, there's a horseman. We remember the four living creatures that we studied. They were a special class of angels known as cherubim. And so with the first four seals, a living creature comes Creature number one breaks seal number one. Creature two, seal number two, and so forth through the first four seals. And God describes using the imagery of a horse to help us understand what is going to unfold. Now, I told you before that one of the reasons that the revelation is difficult to understand is because 300 of the 404 verses are from the Old Testament, and it never once says, well, this is what Zechariah chapter 1 says, or this is what David said, or this is what Isaiah said. It's just woven through. And it's a beautiful weaving because it takes all of the prophecies to the Old Testament through all these various prophets, some of whom you don't know what time frame they are referring to, and God puts them in chronological order. And so if... We are to understand the revelation, two critical things. One, we have to understand the unconditional promises God made to Israel. And number two, we have to understand our Old Testament. So this theme of four horsemen actually comes from Zechariah chapter 1, where there's Persian rulers who send out these horses to, purvey, to, to, to review the king's kingdom. Well, God now sends out four horsemen, not just across some small geographical area, but across the planet to to review what is going on in God's kingdom for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, this chapter refers to a book as the NASB and the King James renders it. But if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, you will see out in the margin, it will say scroll. And that's really maybe a better way to translate it because this is not a book like you would think of it today. Today, you technically have what we call a codex A codex is a book that's bound with pages. But at this time in human history, codexes were virtually not found anywhere. In fact, codexes don't become popular until about the 3rd century. And from the 3rd century to the Middle Ages, books that are bound together in pages are called codex. And that's an important term for you to know because sometimes you are going to be reading a commentary and it's going to refer to a codex or codices, plural, and they're referring typically to books between the 3rd century and the time of the Middle Ages. the codex was revolutionary, much like the printing press. And codexes were initiated by born-again Christians. They came up with the great idea that we should put them together and bound them together to protect God's Word. And so God uses born-again Christians not only in the development of books, but ultimately in the development of the printing press. And so this is really a scroll and the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is given the scroll. Look at chapter um, uh, 6 and verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now we discovered that this was the Antichrist and we studied this man in Daniel chapter nine. He's called the prince who is to come. And we learned that he will make a covenant with the nation of Israel. So he will come as a man of peace. And so he is pictured and described here as having a bow, but with no arrows. and implies that he will go to conquer the world and he will use the threat of war, but there'll be no bloodshed. And so he comes on a white horse, just as the Prince of Peace comes on a white horse. But this is not Jesus. This is the devil's man. This is the Antichrist himself. He will come and offer a peace plan to the world. Think about it, millions of Christians are suddenly gone. Consider all the turmoil that that will bring across the planet. Whether it's car accidents or plane crashes or whatever may take place, God's people are suddenly missing across the planet. And the world is going to be looking for a solution, for a deliverer. And this so-called Savior will come as an imposter. Now, the Bible predicts that at the end of time, most of the turmoil will center around the nation of Israel. It's not by accident that just as God used the Jewish people to bring the first coming of the Messiah, he will use them to bring about the second coming of the Messiah. But what is so sad is now in our day, that's become a minority opinion in the last 50 years. Virtually every, every evangelical 50 years ago would say, no, God's going to use Israel to bring about the second coming. And now it's very popular to say that the church is the new Israel. And there's almost an anti-Semitic spirit that is even feeding the culture. But in Daniel 9, this antichrist is described. Let me read it to you. Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27. It's a prophecy, and by the way, if you weren't with us in our series on Daniel, if you can't review the whole book, you might want to at least listen to Daniel 9. I did four hours of teaching out of Daniel 9, and Daniel 9 is very important because it's a schematic that will guide you through the book of Revelation, especially verses beginning in verse 24. But here in 9.26, he says, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood, even to the end that there will be war, desolations are determined. God predicts in Daniel nine twenty four through 27, 490 years of Israel's history. And he breaks it down. He gives the big schematic in verse 24. Here's what's going to happen in 490 years. Then in verse 25, he says, here's what's going to happen in the first 483 years. And then between verse 25 and 26, there's a gap of time. We call it the church age. God right now is building his church. And if you were with us in our study of Daniel, we saw numerous examples sprinkled all the way through the Old Testament and even through the teachings of our Savior where in a single verse of Scripture or sometimes between two verses of Scripture, there is a gap of time. One dealing with the first coming, the second after the gap dealing with the second coming. And so verse 26 predicts the the time frame in which Messiah will be cut off. In Daniel 9, God predicts that there is going to be a decree given by a king to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. We know that date. You can look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And then God gives us the exact number of years in days by which Messiah will come and present himself to Israel. It brings us to April the 6th, 32 AD, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. We call it Palm Sunday. And after that event, he says in this verse that the Messiah will be cut off. It is a reference to the Messiah's death. And indeed, the Lord Jesus was cut off just a few days later in that week. And then he tells us that the people of the prince who is to come will destroy both the city and the sanctuary. So Messiah is cut off, he is crucified, and we know we're in a gap of time just by reading that because the prophecy that follows is something that Jesus spoke of that Daniel wrote of. Remember that time when Jesus wept over Jerusalem? Let me read it to you. For the days will come upon you, upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Messiah is cut off, 38 years later, Titus Vespucian in 70 AD fulfills this prophecy. They begin the siege on the city of Jerusalem in 67 AD, in 70 AD they win. And in the process, one million Jewish people are slaughtered, most of whom are crucified. They crucified so many people, they couldn't find any trees in the city of Jerusalem and its surroundings in order to execute any more people. Uh, a handful of Jewish people were left, In 132 to 135, there's another small rebellion with those who, few that are left, it's called the Bar kopa Rebellion. And at that point, Rome comes down for the final crushing, and the government of Rome makes it illegal for a Jew to live in Israel. And at that point, the emperor of Rome, Hadrian, renames Israel. He calls it at that point, Palestine. It's a play on words from one of Israel's greatest uh, enemies, the Philistines. And so they have this word that the it's a little difficult for one culture to say, and so they, they end up calling it Palestine. I won't go into all the Germanics of it, but anyway, they call it Palestine. And so we have a group of people today that call themselves the Palestinians. There's no such people. There's no such people. It was a made-up word in 1967. And so some people, wanting Israel off of their piece of property, said, this is our land, we're the Palestinian people. Now, if you've ever read the uh, Constitution of the PLO or Hamas, be good reading this afternoon if you don't have anything to do, but there's some paragraphs in there that basically say, Israel is our enemy, we want Israel swept off the land and driven into the sea. And you wonder why the Jewish people don't trust the Palestinians, so to speak, as they call themselves, because in their own constitutions, they say, we don't want them to exist. So here's these prophecies. Messiah is going to be cut off. The city and the sanctuary are going to be destroyed. And that's precisely what happened. Titus comes in. He conquers the place. One of the seven great wonders of the first century world, depending on whose list you're reading, but on most lists, it's the temple. It's absolutely magnificent. Herod the Great began to build it in his lifetime and its construction went all the way almost until its destruction in 70 A.D., It was breathtaking. And so Titus said, don't destroy the temple. Well, the city caught fire, and I don't know if it was accidental or on purpose, but the temple was burned. The temple, as God described it and required it, was covered all over in gold. And the gold began to melt in the fire, and it went down between the rocks. And the Romans, entitled to the spoils of war, began to pry apart every single rock to get the gold And Jesus' word was fulfilled, not one stone would remain upon the other. If you go to Israel today, you'll see the retaining wall and the temple sat on the top, but you will see many of the old temple stones cast over to the side, and it's not by accident. You have this final rebellion, the Bar-Kobah, making it illegal for Jews to be there. Well, understand, as we move into the 19th century, there are some Orthodox Jews who say, God says in his word that we should own Israel. And so some Jews, small in number, began to migrate in the late 19th century to Israel. Here's some demographics in terms of population. In 1880, the first record we have of Jewish people living in Israel, there's approximately 25,000 Jewish people. God uses the evil of men sometimes to praise him. What some people mean for evil, God means for good. Hitler, who's born in Austria, makes his way to Germany. He becomes a German politician. He wants the total annihilation of the Jews. And the Jews are not welcomed anywhere. A boatload of some 900 Jewish people, you can see the letter in both the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and in Israel, They're turned away by our own government, by our own president. And most of them go back to the gas chambers. Having no place and no country by which they are welcomed, many of the Jews flee to Israel. And so in 1948, what Hitler meant for evil, God meant for good, there are 600,000 Jews living there. And on May 14th, 1948, they win their independence in spite of the fact that they are surrounded by a 100 million Arabs. And God reestablishes the nation. Today, there's only about 12, maybe 13 million Jews on the whole planet. There's 6.42 million Jews living there. And even the anti-Semitism of the last five years continues to bring them. In France, in the last two years, more and more Jews are hated. They're going to Israel. And even in the last few weeks... The Jewish people have expressed their concern over what's happening in Germany, and many are fleeing from Western Europe back to Israel. Is this accidental? No, this is providential. It's significant because God says that this will happen at the end of time. Let me read a couple of texts. Isaiah 45, God is speaking, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. The prophet Ezekiel said this, and if you read these texts, they are speaking about the end of time. We've learned two critical theological terms concerning God's prophetic schedule. One is last days. Last days... The last days began on the day of Pentecost. Peter tells us that in Acts 2. We've been in the last days since Pentecost. What that means is that there's never, ever been in the history of the church anything that has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back. The New Testament teaches the imminent return of Jesus, that he could have come back 10 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And then any remaining prophecy would be fulfilled after the rapture of the church, culminating in the second coming. But think about what happened and how things unfolded. Israel was annihilated as a people virtually in 70 A.D. The rest were expelled from the land. And yet Daniel nine twenty seven tells us that the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to make a covenant. To have a covenant, you've got to have people there. You have to have Jewish people. So there's not only the term the last days, and I believe we're in the last of the last days, but there's a second term that refers to the end of time. It's associated not with the rapture, but with the second coming. It's called the latter times or the latter days. And so God, by these prophets, speaks about what will happen in the latter days prior to the second coming. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Moses said this, speaking of the end of time, if you're outcast or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back into the land which your fathers possessed. And so here in Daniel 9, 27, and he, speaking of the princes to come, will make a firm covenant with the many, the term the many, it's articular in the Hebrew is reflected in the NASB, refers to the Jewish people throughout the book of Daniel. The many is the Jewish people. He will make a firm covenant with the many, with the Jewish people for one week. Now, if you remember, when we studied Daniel 9, the term week in the Hebrew mind can mean one of two things. In our Western mind, we just typically think of a week of days. So when we say the word week, we think of seven days. But in the Hebrew mind, there's not only a week of days, but a week of years. So if you say a week, you could mean seven days, or you could mean seven years. And I gave illustrations from the Scripture, like Jacob, who wanted Rachel to be his wife, and and Laban tricked him, and, and so Laban said, you can work another week, meaning another seven years, and he goes ahead, and he's able to take Rachel as well. In either case, we saw contextually that this was not a week of days, but a week of years, God's plan for the Jewish people for 490 years. He tells us what took place in the first 483 years. It's now history from our perspective, and there's still One week left, seven years left. And so in the book of Daniel and in the Revelation, you will read of this seven-year period. For instance, in Daniel 7.25, they will be given, the Jewish people will be given into his hand, the Antichrist, for a time, times, and half a time. That refers to three and a half years. And again, if that's new to you, go back and listen. Go to scriptures.org, download that sermon. So here's some terms you're going to see in Daniel and in Revelation. Time, times, and half a times. Three and a half years in Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 12, 7. 42 months in Revelation 11, Revelation 13. Or 1,260 days in Revelation 11 and Daniel 12. Seven-year period divided into two halves, 1,260 days, 42 months, 1,260 days, 42 months. Now, the whole time frame is called the Great Tribulation in Revelation 6. We'll get to that before we're done. Or Revelation 7, excuse me. But something happens at the midpoint of the Tribulation that will turn the Great Tribulation into greater Tribulation. And all hell is going to break loose when that event takes place in the middle. And we will see that Jesus will document this for you. This is not just one pastor's understanding of it. We will go to the words of Jesus and we will see in the Olivet Discourse how the same schematic in Matthew 24 perfectly follows what we're going to read in these chapters here in the Revelation. And so Daniel 9.27 predicts what John calls the white horse rider and he... The prince who is to come will make a firm covenant for one week for seven years with the many, with the Jewish people. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at the first rider, the rider on the white horse, and he is to be distinguished really from one that we might call the fifth rider of the apocalypse. There are five riders in the apocalypse. The four found here in chapter six, the fifth found in Revelation 19. The horseman in Revelation 6 carries a bow without arrows. He comes as a man of peace with the threat of war to conquer, but it's a bloodless victory. Jesus comes back with a sword, and he will execute wrath with his angels in flaming fire. The rider in Revelation 6 wears a crown. It's the word Stephanos. We saw that that was used of the the laurel wreath that a person would receive as they participated in the Greek and Isthmian games that would fade away. But Jesus comes back not with a crown singular, but in some of your translations, crowns plural, but it's actually diadem. It's a different word, diadems. He comes back wearing diadems. And the diadem was a crown of a king. And he's no ordinary king. The Antichrist comes and he brings three and a half years of peace, as Daniel documents for us, as Revelation will illustrate for us. The man, the God man in Revelation nineteen, he comes and he brings a thousand years of peace. Um, in Revelation six, two, in some of your English texts, he is simply called a rider. Literally, the Greek says, as the N-E-S-P says, him who sat. And so some just interpret it and call him a rider. Him who sat. But the one on the horse in Revelation 19 is given a title, king of kings and lord of lords. He is not a false Christ. He is the true Christ. He is the one who will rule and reign. He is called also faithful and true. And as we study the Antichrist, we will see he is just the opposite. He is unfaithful and he is untrue, because he is Satan's man, and, this, and the devil comes only to speak lies. And then finally, the Antichrist will bring about the start of the tribulation, where Jesus will bring in his millennial kingdom, which will turn return into his eternal kingdom that will never end forever and ever and ever. All right, you with me? Let's read our text now. Revelation 6, verse 1. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come, I looked and behold an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name death and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with the famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So God's judgments upon an unbelieving world begins with the opening of the first of seven seals, and they progressively get worse. We will see here in Revelation 6, uh, 13 times over, a third of the world, a third of this, a third of that that's damaged. When we come to the trumpet judgments, we will see it change to a quarter. They're not the same judgments, though there are common characteristics in both. And when we come to the bold judgments, it will encompass the entire planet in every respect. Now, when we open the book of Revelation, we read this in Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not the revelation of John the Divine as some old King James translations rendered it. Most don't do that anymore. This is not the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's not the book of Revelations. It's Revelation singular. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to him, given to Jesus. It's not given to john it's initially given to jesus in what sense he's the omniscient god he's not learning anything new it's given to him as we will see and that he owns it he owns this revelation and all that is going to unfold in these seven plus years leading up to his second coming the revelation of jesus christ which god gave to him to show to his bond servants that's us If you've been born again, you are called a slave of God. You are one of Jesus' bondservants, the things that must soon take place. Now, the careful reader, especially living not in 95 A.D., but in 2,000-plus years later, will simply ask, what do you mean by soon? This revelation was given to John about 2,000 years ago. Very little seemingly has taken place. So what do you mean by soon? And we saw that the word soon, quickly, suddenly, depending on your English Bible, is the word "taxis." It's used a number of times all the way through Revelation, and it u- is used to describe something that happens quickly, not so much the length of time, but the speed of time, and so from the word taxis, we get our word tachometer. Some of you in the 70s would strap a big tachometer up on the, uh, before they built them into cars, up on uh, your, your uh, b- 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 in front of your steering wheel, remember? So some of you don't know what I'm talking about, they, they, they used to put these tachometers up there, and suppose Supposedly, it was a piece of speed equipment. And guys who had slow cars, who had no horsepower, they'd still put them up there. I guess it made them feel good. But in either case, once these judgments begin, once the door in heaven is open, very quickly, suddenly, soon, the seal, the trumpet, and the bowl judgments, STB, you know what STS is? Search the scriptures. Jesus said, search the scriptures because they reveal me. This is STB, seal, Trumpet bowl judgments, and they happen very, very quickly. They unfold, and once they unfold, it happens incredibly fast. It will take your breath away. Now, as this next chart shows, if you'll bring it up, I think, or what do we have? Bring it up. Yeah, there we go. Remember now, here are these horsemen. And they take place in the first three and a half years. All four horsemen, and not just that, the first six seals are going to happen in the first three and a half years. And the seventh seal, when that's opened, that's going to be opened in response to an event that happens dead center in the seven years. And that will bring the trumpet and bold judgments that are going to follow. Um, So, Keep that in mind. The schematics are very important. Hold your finger here for just a second. Uh, Let me read verse 4. Turn to First Thessalonians 5 for a moment. And as you're turning there, I'm going to read verse 4. It says, And another, a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. So when the second seal is open and the horse, the man on the red horse is loosed, things really get ugly. And by the way, remember, Antichrist comes first. He comes with a bow without any arrows. He comes as a man of peace. But the peace is short-lived, and things get ugly very, very fast. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, look, if you will, at verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. You remember the day of the Lord? That's an important phrase in the Bible. Whenever the word day in Hebrew or Greek is accompanied with a number next to it, it's referring to a literal, actual 24-hour day, no exceptions. So when you come into the Old Testament, for instance, there are over 465 times when the word yom, day, is accompanied with a number, and no one debates, oh, that's an actual 24-hour day. But when we come to the opening chapters of Genesis and you have a number with the Hebrew word day, day one, day two, day three, not to mention the further defining phrase evening and morning, Christians today say, well, that doesn't mean a 24-hour day. That must mean long periods of time. And they want the day of the Lord, to fit with modern-day science. And that's dangerous. God has the final word, not man. And so for nearly 1,900 years, all born-again Christians throughout church history said the world was made in six literal days. Why do we believe that? Not only because the Bible plainly says it, but God gave us divine commentary through Moses in Exodus 20. He said in six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, you are to work six literal days. And on the seventh day you are to rest. So God makes an analogy. He describes through Moses that these are real days. But you see, the world wants you to think that we've been around for billions and billions of years and we got billions of billions of years to go. Why does the world want you to think that? Because if this thing has been going on forever, there's no real accountability. We're not going to meet the living God where we will have to give an account. God is not going to come back anytime soon. He's not going to intervene in human history because he hasn't intervened in billions of years, not to mention some say he didn't even create the world. And then foolish Christians say God used the process of evolution to create the world, which goes against everything in Scripture because you have death before the creation. Yeah, I mean, excuse me, you have death before sin enters into the world. God is very clear. Now, the term the day of the Lord, no number, is like the phrase in English, what we call the day of your youth. You weren't a youth for 24 hours. It was a period of time. And the day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament to describe a brilliantly beautiful time or an absolutely horrible time, depending which prophet you're reading. Because the day of the Lord in the Old Testament mimics a biblical day. I have an Orthodox friend who never calls me between Friday evening and Saturday evening. He lives in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's their Sabbath. And he can't call me on their Sabbath because you shouldn't use the phone on the Sabbath. And Jewish people, especially the Orthodox, have a lot of rules. If you go to Israel, you don't want to, on a Sabbath day, get stuck on a Sabbath elevator. I found myself on the 20th floor. And it stopped. I got on the Sabbath elevator and every single floor had stopped. Why? Because they don't want you to push the button because to push the button is work, all right? So the day of the Lord, it starts in the evening and it goes to evening. The day of the Lord starts in darkness. It gets progressively dark in the tribulation. But then there is a bright spot when Jesus comes back. And the S-O-N is compared to the S-U-N. And there's a thousand years, so to speak, of sunshine. And then we will see at the end of the millennium, it will get dark all over again. And so the day of the Lord refers to this long period of time, beginning with the rapture, going all the way through the millennial reign of Christ. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, look at verse three, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape just before this cataclysmic time begins that's described in Revelation 6, everyone is going to say, the world is wonderful, peace and safety. Our man on the white horse, who is the Antichrist, has brought us this global government, and there are so many people who are pushing for a one-world government today. He has solved all of our problems. When they are saying, peace and safety, then suddenly, destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, I believe the nations of the world, whether they know it or not, at least are preparing for this coming day, for this new world order. And for a few short moments, they will feel like they've achieved it. But then suddenly, it's emphatic in the original. When you want to emphasize something in Greek, you change the word order. So it's out of the normal order. It's put at the front of the sentence. Suddenly, in a split second, everything's going to change like a thief in the night. If someone breaks into your home tonight, I promise they will not write you a letter ahead of time letting you know they are going to come. Jesus is going to come back someday like a thief. And just like a thief that will take something, Jesus is going to come back and take something. Who's he going to take? Yeah, moi, us. Those of us that know him as Lord. And suddenly millions of Christians will be gone across the planet. One minute, some Christian will be in a hospital bed suffering. The next moment, the sheets will be empty. One minute, a Christian will be piloting an airplane. The next moment, it's going down. One moment, a Christian is driving his car. The next moment, it's suddenly gone. One moment, a Christian is grieving at the graveside over a loved one. The next moment, the person in the casket comes out and those of us who are alive will be caught up together in the air. And in churches, maybe even some churches like this, people will come on a Sunday morning and instead of having hundreds and hundreds of people, you might come and there's 10 people. Say, so where is everybody? Is this Sunday? Who's on first? What's going on? Where is everybody? Where'd Nat go? Where did Jerry go? Where did Sally go? Where did Fred go? Where did the pastor go? You might come up to Pastor Ed and say, Pastor Ed, where's the pastor? (laughs) Suddenly, like a thief in the night, millions will be gone. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, not upon us, upon them. Suddenly, Why? Because as verse 9 will say later in this chapter, if you have it open and you should turn to the text when I ask you to, you'll get a lot more out of it, because we're not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. And this is the time frame called the wrath of the Lamb in 616. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, the word suddenly, again, is emphasized in the Greek because in the pregnancy of an expectant mother, suddenly the labor begins. I was supposed to baptize a brother, new believer in this service, and uh, his wife's pregnant, and when we met recently, I said, well, we'll schedule it for this Sunday. He said, I don't know if we'll be here. Well, suddenly this morning, she went into labor, and so we didn't baptize him today. Well, suddenly... The labor begins, and they shall not escape. And again, as we read in verse 16, there will be people who will try to escape, who will say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. But they will not be able to hide from God Suddenly like in the middle of the night A burglar will come And suddenly like in the pregnancy Of an expectant mother The water will break and labor will begin Now both are sudden But they are different similes The burglar is unexpected While once pregnancy has begun Labor is very much expected So when you put the two metaphors together The day of the Lord Which will commence with the rapture of the church and will begin to unfold in its horror in Revelation 6, will come suddenly like a burglar in the night when God comes and takes his people. And then suddenly as the wrath unfolds, just like you cannot reverse labor, once it starts, it begins and it gets more and more and more intense, there will be no escape. All right? So, there's the red horse of destruction. First, he comes and the peace is broken. Secondly, the planet is brutalized. The planet is brutalized. The peace that's instituted by the Antichrist is short-lived because Satan's aim is to come to steal and to kill and to destroy. I mean, can you imagine a world that is consumed by war where every corner of the planet is encompassed with pain and with suffering and with war? We'll study it later, I think, in the Revelation. Is he Ezekiel 38 and 39, God gives us a snippet of what's going on during that time. Many of the nations like Iran and other countries like Russia and some other Muslim countries are specifically named in the scripture that are going to come against Israel. And God highlights especially that particular war because of its ramifications on the people of Israel. But we read in verse 4, and another, a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Remember, first living creature, first... Cherubim says, "Come." White horse comes. Second living creature says, "Come." Second horse comes. Red horse comes, and the word for red is not accidental. There's another word for red in Greek. This particular word for red is a word that's used of warning. It's used of bloodshed. He comes on a red horse, just like the red dragon. Same word used there is ferocious and brutal and vicious. This man comes on his fiery red horse with great brutality, and he. the Bible says, with a sword. And the word for sword was the word that was used by the Romans who could authoritatively execute people. But not just any sword. The Bible modifies this as having a great sword. Maybe it's some weapon of mass destruction. But the Bible is clear that what is going to happen in this time frame is not limited to Israel, but he is going to take peace from the whole world. It's granted to him, to take peace from the earth, that men would slay one another. This is a world war of the magnitude that people have never seen. In this writer, the Bible says, was permitted to take peace from the world. We've already underscored with the white horse, it was granted to him. In other words, what takes place, takes place under the sovereign hand of God Almighty. While this man has freedom, while this man has his horse that goes across the planet, his horse is on a leash and it's under the hand of a sovereign God. They will say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of the Lamb who sits on the throne. And while he may execute judgment and war, he is within offense. He's within certain boundaries during this day of wrath that is going to come. Now think about this. This is different from any other time in human history. Jesus said there's never been a time like it. There'll never be a time like it again. World War I was a horrible war. They say 18 million people died in the First World War. And the Second World War, we don't have an exact number, but it's somewhere between 60 and 80 million people who died. Not those who were injured, but who actually died. But as we're going to see, those are very, very small numbers compared to what is going to happen during this time of tribulation. And again, it will be a great sword, and no one knows for sure how that will unfold. Nine nations currently possess nuclear weapons, and our government tells us that 24 third world nations are trying to become nuclearized nations. Now, Jesus warned us in the Olivet Discourse that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24 that there will be birth pangs that will progressively get worse, that will go all the way until the Battle of Armageddon. Now, right now, the world is armed to the hilt. We have nations that we wish didn't have nuclear capacities, but they do. One famous general recently said, we have enough stockpiles of military weaponry to kill everyone on the planet 150 times over. Imagine that 150 times over. Of course, once would be enough, I think, but anyway. But I can tell you right now, the only thing that keeps the world from exercising this control is God, the Holy Spirit, who's the restrainer. He is holding back. But one of these days, the church is going to be removed and the Holy Spirit's presence in the church will be lost. The light will be gone and all hell will break loose. I will never forget watching the day after with my father in our living room. It was before my senior year in college, New York City at 9.30 in the evening had a total blackout. Some of you remember that. And, uh, they said, I went back and reviewed this week, over 1,600 stores were looted, 1,037 fires were set, and $300 million of damage took place in one night. Nobody was actually killed, but thousands and thousands of people were hurt. And I don't know, maybe people thought, well, they could do it in the dark, the lights were out, no one would see, but God sees. The psalmist said, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. It's really a picture of what people will do in the darkness. Paul says people sin often in the darkness. Somehow they think they can escape the judgment of God or the sight of God Almighty, but they cannot. But what took place was just a smidgen just a foretaste of what is going to take place when the red horse man comes and peace is removed from the world, when the light of the world is gone, when the salt of the earth that prevents decay from happening, then nation, as Jesus said, will rise against nation. The word nation is the word that we get our word ethnicity from. And kingdom will go against kingdom. That speaks of geopolitical boundaries. In other words, there's going to be race wars, ethnic wars, and world wars between nations across the planet. What took place in World War I and World War II, though they encompassed many nations, it was just a fraction of the nations of the world. And this coming day, every nation in the world is going to be engaged in war. And it will be a different time. There won't be any mothers praying for their children before they go off to battle. No fathers interceding for their son. No chaplains in the foxholes trying to introduce people to Jesus because the church will be gone. And during this time, as we'll see, as fast as people are converted, they're literally butchered and martyred for their faith. The Revelation is a book of prophecy. It is a book describing events that are yet to happen. And when the red horseman comes, he will literally take peace from the earth. It's never happened to this extent. You could take the French Revolution, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korean War, every conflict you could think of and put them all together. And they won't even begin to compare to what is in front of man. My friends, it will be a world without any hope. I mean, can you imagine what it will be like? And of course, we will read next week of the famines that will come. And famines always follow war. And so Jesus, describing this time, said, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. The shrieks and the moans and the groans of people will be so horrible when this ghastly, gruesome. Awful man comes on his red horse. You don't want to be here. So how are we going to apply this today? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, if you are a Christian, are you seeking to bring people to Christ? Are you seeking to bring people to Christ? Really, the four horsemen... It's just a reminder of another kind of wrath. This is God's wrath through the Lamb during the tribulation period. But this wrath will eventually change into eternal wrath. And when we study the eternal wrath that is yet to come, it's even worse than anything we're going to read in the Revelation. Now, men don't have to go to hell. God's heart is that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. But if men die and go to hell, it will be because they have refused God's provision. But God shares his provision through the church. But as we've seen, the church at the end of time, though the seven churches don't displays seven time frames, the final church that's mentioned in Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea, nonetheless pictures the church at the end of time because other scriptures tell us that, that the church at the end of the age will be a lukewarm, preoccupied church. That's the body of Christ in our day. People spend more time on their Facebook page and on social media than they do in their Bibles. They spend more time communicating their latest picture than they do communicating the gospel. And so I would just say to you, do you have loved ones and friends and family who could be left behind for this? You say it won't happen in our day. How do you know that? God is setting the stage. He could have come in 125 A.D. or 200 A.D. But the amazing thing is all of the prophecy that he is fulfilling in our day for the second coming that lets you know the rapture is that much closer. Do you care about those people? Of course you do, but is your heart captured by anything else such that you're really not fervently trying to reach out to them? Look, we've got some opportunities coming up in the next six weeks. We have Reformation Sunday, the last Sunday in... In October, which that night we'll have the fall festival, and a week later we'll have friend day. Some of you on friend day used to try to bring a friend. It's a day when I just simply preach the gospel. Nothing too heavy in terms of a text like this. Just a simple presentation of the gospel. I mean, if there's a good day to bring a lost friend, relative, mother, brother, sister, neighbor, it's that day. We've got the men's wildlife supper. I mean, we've got some opportunities that God has given us. The question is, does my heart care? Does my heart reach out? We printed a couple thousand of those cards, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. How many of us have passed out one? I mean, you talk about a a topic of interest, even amongst the unchurched. It's what we're doing right now. So ask yourself, am I seeking to bring people to Christ? Secondly, if you are a Christian, are you ready to meet the Lord? I hope you understand that there is a difference between being ready to go to heaven and ready to meet the Lord. Anyone who's truly, genuinely received Jesus as their Lord and Savior is ready to go to heaven. But not everyone is ready to meet the Lord. John, speaking to born ones, little children, says this in 1 John 2.28, And now little children abide in him. That means like walk with the Lord so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Some Christians, when Jesus shows up, are going to be embarrassed. And they're going to say, how foolish I was, how temporal was my investment in this life. Never really sought even to invite someone to community Bible church, much less take them through the plan of salvation. Never really engaged in getting to know the people of the church. Going to an ABF, that's a million miles from my brain because I just want to get here, do my time, and leave because that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. And we'll meet the Lord in shame, God's people. And so a few verses later, he will say, beloved, now we are children of God. He just called us that little ones. We are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he's pure. See, that's what a study of revelation should do to you. It should cause the return of Jesus from heaven to begin to reverberate in your soul throughout the day. Why? Because it has an effect where you become pure as he is pure. If you knew he was coming this afternoon at 3 o'clock, is there someone you'd pick up the phone and say, hey, Joe, I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? And I owed you that $100 that I, I ripped you off on. Here's your 100 bucks." Or is there some neighbor, some friend that you'd go and try to win to Jesus? See, that's what the reality of Jesus coming back again does to the believer, to the child of God who's walking with him. So it's entirely possible that you're ready to go to heaven but really not ready to meet the Lord. And it doesn't have to continue. Today can be the first day of the rest of your life. And then finally, basically, are you ready to go to heaven? Because if you're not saved, if you don't have the assurance that if you had a heart attack in that chair. You know, my wife and I were in a gas station yesterday. I mean, in a gas station, just pulling away from a pump, and a lady hit us at 20 miles an hour. <laughs> I mean, she hit that Honda so hard, she pushed that front wheel right up into the engine compartment. Had she hit maybe a foot lay, uh, back behind the, in the side door, she hit us on the, my side. I don't think I'd be here this morning. I already have a stiff neck. And I'm not saying that because I'm suing. I don't sue people. I suppose I could have worn a, a neck brace to church and shown some lawyer. <laughs> but life is so fragile. It's but a vapor that appears for a moment and then it's gone. Are you ready to meet the living God? Do you know that you know that you know that heaven is your home? Because if Jesus comes this afternoon, it will be forever too late for you. And you'll never get it right during the tribulation period. Today can be your day of salvation, but you must come to the only one who can save you. And his name is Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we read today. You gave us this portion of Scripture not to make us smarter, but to make us more like your Son. I pray today, Father, for someone who's here who really doesn't have the assurance, someone who's listening online, maybe even in another country of the world, but they don't know that they know that they know that if this were their last day on earth, that heaven is their home. Father, help them to see that there's nothing they can do to merit or contribute to salvation that Jesus paid it all with his own precious blood there on Golgotha. Your word says the gift of God is eternal life, that we're saved by grace through faith, not by good deeds, so no one can boast. Help them to see, Father, that salvation is not something you earn, but a gift you humbly receive. And that then when they receive you, you begin to change them. Help someone in simple faith, knowing that you cannot lie, knowing that you keep all your promises, that when you said whoever would call upon the name of Jesus, you meant that. Help someone to say in simple faith, Jesus save me by your death and resurrection. Now, Father, you know the rest of us, and none of us are 100% consistent, but we want to be We don't want to shrink in shame when Jesus comes back. Help us to do some personal inventory today. Our hearts would be clean and right with you. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.